Are you blessed to be here today? I pray that it is true. I'd like you to take your Bibles and join me in Luke's Gospel. We're going to be in chapter 7 this morning. I appreciate uh, James and Trent and uh, Gary (laughs) and Bob as well uh, stepping in and, and doing some of the announcements and things for me. I feel fine, but my voice is several days behind me, Uh, so just bear with me. I want to make sure that I say everything the Lord would have me to say, Uh, but there'll be some times where I pause for a second and chug some water and all that, and I started my cough drop earlier, so you don't have to hear that thing clickety-clack in all service, but uh, I'm excited to do this study with you this morning. The uh, title of the message is A Story of Self-Righteousness. But before we uh, get into the word, we're going to do a little history on the Pharisees. So if you have a bulletin, you can flip it over to the back side, and there's a big space there that we have for your notes. Uh, As I've said before, if you're interested in getting a copy of the notes that I use, I save all of my notes in a PDF format, uh, which means you don't have to have Word or Mac pages or whatever, Google Docs, all that. I can email it to you, and you can use it on any device anywhere. You can look at it in a web browser. You can download it to your computer. But I think they'll be very helpful for you. I'm teaching the life of Christ right now, and we just got through this section, and uh, I wanted to make sure that we covered it. I'm quoting from a book that I read called A Short Life of Christ that goes over all of the different things that Jesus did. And I noticed as I was reading through this book, this author, he did a very, very good job describing the history of the Pharisees. Now, you and I, being uh, Bible students, or maybe just people who read through the Bible once a year, you know a lot about the Pharisees. They're really kind of the enemies to Christ. But they were not the enemies in the eyes of the people. And I think it's important that we understand that, because this is why at the end of Christ's ministry, after he went in to Jerusalem, after the triumphant entry, this is why he was rejected five days later, Uh, And it's because the Pharisees stirred the minds of the people. You have to understand that the Pharisees had a very important role in society. They were pretty much like middle-class pastors and teachers and preachers. Um, People looked up to them. They would look at them and say, wow, the righteousness of the Pharisees. They're such kind people. Look at all of their ceremonies and rituals and traditions. I want to be like them. We We can idolize pastors the same way today. I think a lot of people are trying really to just copy the role of their pastor instead of following after Christ. But as Jesus came in and his ministry began, really with John the Baptist declaring and announcing the way, the Pharisees started to get very offended and upset by the things that Jesus was saying. And we're going to get into that in a moment. But let me just give you some things here. If you're writing something down, we're going to talk about the Pharisees in the time of Christ's ministry, but we're going to talk about how they formed They were formed sometime after the Babylonian captivity under Ezra's renewed zeal for the law. They emerged under the guidance of the scribes. We need to just chat about the scribes for a moment. The scribes are significant because they're the ones that preserved the word. They were not mere control-C, control-V people. My computer nerds, you know what that means. For everyone else, that means they didn't just copy and paste. If there was one issue. If there was one word that was not written correctly or one mistake, they would, they would tear up the whole page and start over after they went and ceremonial, uh, ceremoniously bathed themselves. So we're not talking about you just hit backspace. 
and uh, there's no accountability. There was a lot of accountability, and the scribes were considered one of the most precious positions in the nation as far as the religious side, because they're the ones that preserved the law. They're the ones that made it available to be read in the temple, to be taught to the people. So they had to have a very, very important place in the religious system. But the Pharisees kind of emerged out from that as a body of people who were committed to faithful adherence. You think of Pharisees, you think of separated ones, but don't think it means separated from the people. It means separated in a life of devotion to faithful adherence of the law. Do you understand that difference? Sometimes we kind of look at Pharisees and we may think, oh, similar to the cardinals and the bishops and the priests in the Catholic Church. We don't ever really see them, but we know that they're there and they have power. That's not really the understanding of a Pharisee. The Pharisee lived a life openly. He could be seen in the way he lived his life, and he was separated unto the faithful adherence of the law. They were determined to preserve the traditions of Israel at any cost. They were known early on before they got their title of Pharisees as the pious ones. Now today we, we, we have proper understanding that there is a lot of problems that comes with self-righteousness, so I don't think a lot of us would call ourselves pious, uh, you know, observing religious uh, traditions and ceremonies. But there are still many, many ways of faith today that are hinging on people's piety. You think of all the things that they go through just so <coughs> they can be seen of men. <coughs> Bear with me just a moment. <coughs> the title Pharisee was adopted to represent their separation from unto the maintenance of moral and ceremonial purity. They were admired by the people because of their relation to the common folks. So understanding that we're walking into this idea of what the Pharisees are in the time of Christ, now Jesus comes on the scene. And they say some things about Jesus, and I want to make sure you know that here. First kind of objection to Jesus is he speaks as one who has authority. How many of you understand that phrase? Okay, the scribes would merely read. It would kind of do like, how many of you have been to a Catholic church? Raise your hand for a moment. All right, so you know what I'm talking about. You have the book. The book is read. It's very monotonous. And there's this idea of we're righteous. We are with God. We are communing with God because we're repeating this phrase. We're repeating these things over and over. We just did a study on the confession of faith. And the purpose of, the, of that study was to get out of the ritualistic ideas that these are just some things that we repeat over and over and over. There's actual doctrinal truths in these things that we want to be reminded of ourselves. And the scribes, when they taught, they kind of just repeated what had already been said. Jesus comes in and he speaks with authority. That's different. And that's a direct attack to their jobs, to their well-being. Here's the Pharisees that are doing everything that Jesus is saying, but what's the difference? Well, Jesus speaks as one with authority. That was one of their objections. A second objection is they said he claimed to have the power to forgive sins. <coughs> That's actually where we'll be today. They said all of the miracles that he did as far as casting out demons were under the power of Satan. And Jesus, he quelled that pretty quickly. He says a house that is divided cannot stand. 
why would he, as a representative for Satan, also be casting out those who everybody already understood were demons, which come from, hello, Satan. But these were the tactics of the Pharisees. They also objected that he ate with tax collectors and sinners. This was frowned upon if you're a Pharisee. Why? You are separated unto the faithful adherents of the law. You don't even want to be near those that are considered unclean. But Jesus had ministry with them. He had fellowship with them. They also had problems that he did not observe traditional practices of the law, like fasting and the washing of hands before eating. I don't think Jesus was kind of like a, you know, someone who was dirty and grimy and just thought, I'm never going to wash my hands. But he did things or did not do things at a certain point in time to expose the hypocrisy of those Pharisees. Another thing that the Pharisees objected to Jesus was the fact that he performed miracles on the Sabbath. That's all, that, that would be a great sermon in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, when the disciples ate bread on the Sabbath day, and Jesus goes in and talks about those things. But they brought these things against him. A couple more here. He spoke of the, temp, the temple's impending destruction. That was in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. That was actually... The only thing that the Pharisees could, after many, many attempts of false witnesses, the only thing that they could say against them was, he spoke about destroying the temple. And then also, they did not like that he claimed a unique relationship to God, specifically as God's son. If you want to just understand what is the core of history, what is the, the fight between man and God, it is, does man accept that Jesus is the son of God? This is why John and 1 John is so, uh, he, he makes such a big claim that Jesus is the Son of God. Talks about the Trinity declaring it. Refers back to the law of two witnesses in Deuteronomy 19. And there will be people who die and end up standing before God at the great white throne judgment who will give an account for all of their works and they will be dismissed into hell because they did not believe on Jesus Christ. That's why when the gospel is given, it's very important that we understand the things that make up the gospel. All right, now let's look at the tactics of the Pharisees. So we talked about a couple of things. These are the things that upset them. This is how they responded to it. And it escalates as you study the life of Christ, which I I think it would be good if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Instead of looking at separate books, so to speak, get yourself a good harmony of the gospels. You can look that up on Google and see all four of those books as a sphere So that when you see something in Luke, you can also understand where it is in Matthew and Mark. What does John say about it? It's important to see all these things together because we call it a a synoptic gospel, synoptic, one view. So we see many views of the same person, but if you understand where things are, it'll be helpful. And as you study the Pharisees and their persecution of Christ, it started very subtly and then it grew to attempted murder. Censure to his actions in front of his disciples. So what they would do is they'd follow Jesus around. They already knew John the Baptist was a a, a problem. Uh, And then they started to see Jesus after his miracle at uh, the wedding at Cana. And they started to kind of walk around with him. They would would see what he said to people and all of that. That was already um, intimidating to people. Ooh, the Pharisees are here. Better be on my best behavior. I wonder what they say about these things. Then they would start to censure or really kind of uh, chide the disciples. 
A good example of that is in Mark 2.16. They looked at the disciples and they said, you're really going to follow this man who eats with sinners like this? After that was unsuccessful, they then moved to demanding a sign as a token of divine accreditation of his ministry. How many of you are familiar with that? How the Pharisees are, they're always asking Jesus, show us a sign, show us a sign. Jesus makes a statement to them that is also indicative of the nation of Israel. You're a foolish generation because you seek after a sign. What, what does that mean? I'm right here. I am the sign. If you knew what was written before, as you claim to know, you would know that I am the one who's prophesied. Why do you need a sign? See, Jesus is not being a jerk, guys. He's not being mean for the sake of being mean. Unbelief blinds the heart. And I don't mean the boom, boom, boom. It, it, it hardens your mind from coming to the repentance that is required for salvation, which is a change of mind. So after they were unsuccessful with demanding a sign in Jesus, pretty, uh, he gives them a pretty scathing rebuke of that. They move on to ensnaring questions in public to garner the people's disapproval. We can think of some of those. What are some of those? Oh, a man dies, and he had you know, a few wives, and they get into the resurrection. Whose uh, wife will she be? Blah, blah, blah. Jesus gives truth. They don't like that. He answered the question. Many times he would answer the question with a question to expose their um, underlying intent. This happened in the temple as well. When Jesus came into the temple, there's a, huge, there's a bunch of information in Mark's gospel that talks all about that. So once that was not successful, they moved to banning a follower from the synagogue. I would venture to say that this is something that caused a lot of concern with people. You got these loving Pharisees that are just trying to help people. They're, they're demonstrating what it means to be a true child of God, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, they're banning people from the synagogue, the very place where if they want to get to the status that the Pharisees are, they would go. They're banning people. If you kind of look at how uh, truth is, is hidden today, this is exactly the way it is. I mean, I never heard of the phrase misinformation until 2016. Sometimes I hear politicians speak and I go, grammar much? There's all sorts of disinformation, misinformation, and there's, there's a ton of effort out there to chide people who know the truth, bully them, make them feel like they're, it, and the, the tactic is called gaslighting, you make people question their motives so much that they're paralyzed and they won't do anything else. They'll just keep quiet and the lie can continue. It's the same kind of strategy here with the Pharisees. They weren't successful in their public attempts of trying to trap Jesus in questions. So now they're going to start disciplining those who follow him. It's kind of like what's going on in our nation today. You could lose your job based on who you say you voted for in the last couple of elections. When has that ever been the standard? Well, it's been the standard for at least, I'd say, like eight years now. Why is that? Well, people are trying to silence one side from their ability to choose to another. And then, of course, the last uh, tactic of the Pharisees was outright murder. And we see that in John chapter 7, verse 32, and then verses 45 through 46. And Jesus escaped from that. Knowing that they couldn't do it themselves, what did they do? They persuaded the minds of the people. 
Now, there's a reason why we spent 10 minutes going over the tactics of the Pharisees, because the sub, one of the subjects of our story today is a Pharisee. So when you read about Simon the Pharisee in a little bit here, you kind of understand what camp he's in. The number one problem with the Pharisees is right up there on the screen, self-righteousness. I would say the easiest comparable in church today to self-righteousness is legalism. The idea of doing things is the thing that makes you holy. You're going to see three characters in our story today. You'll see Jesus Christ, you'll see Simon the Pharisee, and you'll see the the woman who is a sinner. Not much is said about her except that, but Jesus will also give us a parable, teach some truths from it, and then offer clarification. May I say without any regard that Jesus Christ is the master teacher. He knows the heart of all man. And we'll see that on display here. But we'll also learn some things about salvation and service that I think will help us going forward as we try to reach people who are blinded by their unbelief. When you go out and you give the gospel to people and you give out a gospel tract and you're soul winning to people, people's minds are hardened by their own self-righteousness. People either say, I am so knowledgeable that I deny the very existence of God. Or they'll say, I am so knowledgeable as to say, who can know if Jesus is really the, the, the way? You know, I always think it's funny when you look at our media today and you see all types of content that is made to mock Christians. Isn't that interesting to you? The name of Jesus Christ is used as a swear word. There are animated shows and all sorts of things that make attack after attack after attack on Jesus Christ, but they never touch any other religion. I can't remember the show, but it was a long time ago, back when I was in high school. They got in trouble because they depicted Allah. And very quickly, they banned, the, you know, they, they banned that episode and all that. But in that same season, there were six episodes that mocked Jesus Christ openly. And nothing was done. People have already made up their minds that they're not going to accept Jesus Christ, but that doesn't mean that you and I stop trying to reach them. Who knows what Simon here ended up doing after Jesus Christ rose from the dead. There's a chapter in the, book, the Gospel of John that tells us many of the Pharisees believed. They kept their mouths quiet for fear of losing their, their job, but they did believe. I think that's the work of the Gospel. Amen. It's sad that they didn't grow up in a Christian service, but they still had the opportunity to believe. Just because people are vehemently against Jesus Christ doesn't mean that you and I close our mouths. We we cannot accept that. The choir did an excellent job giving us an example of here I stand. You know, Martin Luther, they they did not look at him and go, oh, what a man of God, let him go. He he was it, that's it. He died. The blood of the Roman Colosseums is soaked, or uh, the sand of the Roman Colosseum is soaked with the blood of Christians. We stand on something greater than what is physical. And with our lives and with our opportunities, we need to be about the gospel message and not reside to, or excuse me, not reserve ourselves to say to somebody, well, you know, I don't want to offend them. I don't want them to get upset. Be offensive. Uh, Listen, in the right way, Obviously, we're not going to go slap people with Bibles and say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Here's an ice pack. <laughs> we're not going to do that. 
But you got to learn how to reach people where they are. You need to be a testimony in the things that you say and do. And you do that through love. And you're going to see an example here that I think is very powerful to understanding salvation, to understanding unbelief, to understanding self-righteousness, and what Jesus teaches. So let's go to the scripture, shall we? Luke chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 36. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, the one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss or greeting, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore, I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, thy faith hath saved thee, go in peace. Mm, good stuff. What does it mean? What can we apply from this passage? Well, let's take a look. Meet me back in 36, will you? One of the Pharisees desired that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Here's a great application. Love your enemies, amen? Jesus was not so diametrically opposed to the Pharisees that he disqualified himself from ever going in their presence. We know from later on in the passage that he was able to discern Simon's private thoughts, yet he still went in the house to meet with them. Well, I think we could apply this to the world. We could apply this to those family members and people in our lives who do not want any part of us or who maybe are trying to trap us we can still go and meet with them, amen? We can still try to reach them. Woman here. 
Look at 37. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. You know, this, this always, as a kid, when I would hear this, this passage, I'd go, how weird. You know, I, I'm just imagining my culture, right? I mean, I have three doors to get into my house. One is a gate. The other is the screen door to the porch. And the other is the front door. I cannot imagine somebody coming in of this status, a sinner, walking through my gate, walking into my porch, and walking into my house, and me not going, what are you doing? Why are you here? And I would always look at that and think, there must be something I'm, I'm, I'm not getting. And there is. The idea of a house in this time was a major blessing for those who own the house to have a space for others who are without. And so this idea of the Pharisee inviting Jesus over to dinner obviously was something public. And this woman knew there's a seat for me. Now, she would not lounge on the divan, which is kind of like a sofa. Picture this for a moment. Jesus was probably laying down on a sofa, his head resting on the armrest there, and he would reach over, his head being closer to the food where they would dip and sup and all of that, Pharisee on the other side. We know there were other people there as well. And it was a very important discussion that they were having. His feet would have been laying further away from the meal. But this woman, she was not coming in for the leftovers, folks. She came in, and all that Luke says about her is she's a sinner. So you have this setting. The house is open. You're not open to come and sit at the table, but whatever's left over, we'll give to you. That's why this was not an uncommon thing. And this is what she did when she, ran, when she came into the house. First, she brought an alabaster box of ointment. Let's talk about that for a moment. Alabaster is the expensive part of alabaster box of ointment. The ointment could have been olive oil and probably was, unless it was perfume. Many commentators want to say, oh, this was a prostitute. Oh, this is Mary Magdalene. It's all pure speculation. We can't know. But what we do know is she came with an offering. So she had a purpose in coming to see Jesus. Keep that little nugget, okay? Hold on to it because it'll be important at the end. Here's what she did, 38. She stood at his feet behind him weeping. Let's paint that picture again. Jesus lounging, reaching for the food, discussing with Simon here. She's on the other end. She's far away from the communion meal, the fellowship. She's on the other end of the sofa, and she proceeds to wash his feet with her tears. So she's obviously very worked up. She is emotional. Began to wash his feet with tears, did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet. She broke that alabaster vial and began to anoint those same feet that she prepared with her tears with the ointment. So it's not uncommon that she was there, but what she was doing got people's attention. Verse 39 is Simon's private thoughts. What does he say? Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, stop, mark that, that is the sign of unbelief. 
And you may say, well, maybe Simon was still making up his mind. No, no. Many also conclude that Simon was trying to find something on the behalf of the group of Pharisees that would further condemn Jesus. This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. This is where commentators further speculate that this was a prostitute. Why is that important? Prophets, if you're studying the Old Testament, often take oaths, and there are vows that they partake in that forbid them from communing with other sinners, from fellowshipping with people, even being touched is something that is uh, commonly frowned upon. It would actually call into question if they're a prophet or not. Isn't it good to know that God says the test of a prophet is in his what? Come on, you know it. His words. You know why that is significant? Jesus speaks here. (laughs) If there's anything we can use to condemn Jesus, it is what he says here. We need to see that and know it. Simon, however, all outward appearance. I bet you he had a smile on his face. I bet you he was warm. Maybe he even passed a slice of bread to Jesus as he thought if this man were a prophet. Unbelief results in pride. Lifting up yourself. And Simon is an example of that. Jesus, in verse 40, says, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. Now, I used to think that Simon here, his face went ashen. And he was like, oh, no, he read my thoughts. There's nothing to indicate that there. Zero. But Jesus did. Simon now is just going to have a discussion with the guest of his dinner party. And he saith, Master. I want you to mark that, please, and tie that to this man if he were a prophet. (coughs) This is further proof that Simon denied that Jesus was the prophet that John the Baptist said he was, that his followers said he was, and that he claimed to be, and just called him rabbi, teacher. No one could deny that he spoke with authority, remember? And that was something that was commonly an objection with the Pharisees. But his address to Jesus reveals his inward belief. You're not a prophet. You're not who you say you are. But, Master, say on. Oh, boy. remember as a kid in Awana, James Taylor was the uh, teacher, and we were talking about, I'm sorry, not James, it was Drew. We are talking about how God knows us. And the verse reference was Hebrews chapter 4, all things are open and naked to him. And Drew walked over to the light switch on the room, and he flicked it off. And the door was closed, so you, you can't see your hand in front of your face could do whatever you want. And he asked some people when the light would go off after he turned it back on to make a funny face, to like stick your tongue out at somebody or whatever. And he'd shut the light off and, you know, yours truly. Yeah, I'll do that. (laughs) You know, sticking my tongue out at somebody, whatever it is. And the light would be off so no one would see. And then I'd stop, light come back on and, oh, nobody saw what I did. I remember him saying, it's not that way with God. And that stuck with me as a young kid. I started to realize that the things that I may have thought nobody saw, 
the thoughts that I had that I may have thought that no one else would know, God knows them. That's scary. When you think you have, you're anonymous, and all of a sudden, I've known where you are the whole time. Gotcha. It's like, whoa, that's scary. And what it demonstrated to me is that God is beyond what I understand, amen? Then you read a passage like this, and you see Jesus is now going to give exactly, listen, listen to me, he's going to give Simon exactly what he needs to come to faith. He's going to tell Simon exactly what the problem is, and it's a very painful process, but it's temporary. The pain is alleviated if Simon were to convert from his unbelief to belief. And here's what Jesus says. This is the parable in, the first, uh, in verse 41 and 42. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 50, or excuse me, 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, Simon, which of them will love him the most? Let's take a look at 41. You have one person, 500 pence. You have another 50. 50 is considered a day's wage. So 500 would be 10 times that. You have both of them are in debt. You have a creditor who forgives them both. So both now have been alleviated of their debt, the small and the large, And now Simon is asked, out of this hypothetical illustration to teach, Simon is asked, which one will, look at the end of verse 42, love him most. Doesn't talk about appreciate. Doesn't talk about thankfulness. It talks about love. Which one? will will give more love to the creditor. Simon, in a very Jewish rabbi attitude, he's kind of wishy-washy on his answer. Simon answered and said, I suppose. This is the equivalent of a teenager. Trent will appreciate this as our youth director. After clearly breaking the rules and asked by the teacher, why are you in trouble? They say something like this. Well, I guess because, no, no, you ain't got a well, nothing. You certainly don't have to guess anything. You know. And Simon knew. This is not the King James translators just throwing something in there for flavor and variety. This is in the Greek. He says, I suppose that he. What does he mean by that? He's obviously signifying one, and then he clarifies it, to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, what did Jesus say to Simon? Thou hast rightly judged. See, this is the Pharisee. They get it right, but they don't apply it to themselves. I love when I hear you guys go, "Mm." because to me, you're seeing what the word is telling us here. Of the two people that are there, who has the higher social standing? Simon or the woman? Simon. He's got the house. He's got the food. But there's a third person there who's the sinless, perfect son of God. Amen? And there's a problem with Simon, and there's a problem with the woman, but the woman's problem is far less than Simon's problem. Amen? Now, Jesus... Not every parable is like this. Let's talk about this for a moment. As many parables 
As I teach through the life of Christ, I read some that are reiterated differently in another gospel account. Not every parable is explained, but most of them are. So for you as a Bible student, when you see this next part, 44 through 47, you're seeing what the parable illustrates. Sunday school teachers do this. My Oana teacher demonstrated God's all-knowing power and ability by using a light switch and having someone do something with a funny face. It's not just because he's bored, he doesn't have anything to do. He's using an illustration to teach a biblical truth. This is what Jesus is doing. This is why we can comfortably call him the master teacher, amen? But that doesn't mean every student is smart. (laughs) That doesn't mean that every student's going to just get it. Verse 44, he turned to the woman. Now, physically put this in your mind. Lounging, looking at Simon. Simon, mm mm-hmm, listening to the story. I suppose Jesus is looking at him. He said, you got it right. Good job. He probably didn't do that. He turned away from what should have been happening to the interruption. And he's still speaking to Simon. Look at what it says. He turned to the woman and said unto Simon, so he's motioning to her, seest thou this woman? What a question. Yes, we see her. Yet we have seen her and we have heard her and we smell what she has offered. Seest thou this woman? Yes, she's here. I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Now, why is this significant? Is it sinful that Simon did not do what the woman did? No, not sinful. What does this expose? One loved more than the other. Simon had motives. He had intent to trap, to gain ammunition. But he put a front up. Oh, he was good on the outside. The woman came in 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 her sinful condition, offered of what she had, and did better than Simon. If Simon truly loved the Lord, believed that he was who he claimed to be, then he would have washed his feet. He would have given more reverence and respect to him. But we know from 39, he doubted that His claims of himself were true. Do you know what that's called when you doubt what somebody says to be true? You're calling them a liar. How many of you guys appreciate that? How many of you appreciate being called a liar? Now you look at that bloodstained cross and that empty tomb, and you look in the face of Jesus, and you call him a liar? This is a significant statement that is being made by Simon here. He rejects who Jesus is. The woman accepts it. She's already believed it. Remember that little nugget I told you to hang on to and apply it here? She walked into that house already believing on Jesus. Has to be. Otherwise, she would not have come in in that condition. Look at what it says in verse 45. Thou gavest me no kiss, no greeting. But this woman, since I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. Very likely, either Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here, which would not be uncommon in the culture, or she's continually, at that moment, giving him respect. Hmm. 46, my head 
with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. There's a difference between oil and ointment there. It's not just a synonym, and the translators got lazy. Oil obviously being something that is reserved for ceremony. Ointment meaning it could be any type of oil. That's why a lot of people conclude that she has something basic, like olive oil. But it doesn't matter the quality of materials. It is her intent, it is her faith that is being made known. And Simon is revealing that he does not have the faith that she has. And, and God is exposing that to Simon, who has a private thought, and now God is addressing it. Verse 47, here's the condemnation on Simon. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many. Don't we all have many sins, amen? And yet God has forgiven us. Please don't look over that. Think now how much of your sin has been paid. Are you not thankful? Let's stop playing games. Let's stop with the whole church thing here. We should be thankful people. That God has demonstrated his grace in the offering of his son to pay for all of our sin. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. She's the 500 pence in the story. She's the one that had 10 times the daily wage to owe. And it was all forgiven. Simon is the one with 50. Who looks at the creditor and denies him. And look at the last part here. I told you to focus on 42. Love him most. This is now being made known by Jesus in 47. Are forgiven for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, Simon, the same loveth little. Can you imagine being stuck in a marriage where it's just a contract? Can you imagine going home to your wife or to your husband and knowing they're only there because they have to be there? What kind of love is that? It's not good love. And it's not the love that God has shown to us. He didn't forgive just a little bit of our sin and then ask us to do the rest. Folks, Calvary covered it all. Calvary covered it all. Why would we, those of you who are here today who have put your trust in Jesus Christ, why would we act like the one that we only had 50 pence paid? We have 500 million thousand trillion billion paid. Why do we love so little? That's only a question that you can answer. Now he looks at her for the first time. Think about it. She's come in, done all this. Jesus talks to Simon. Simon talks back to him. Jesus addresses the woman in eyesight, continues to talk to Simon. He says one thing, well, really two things to her. Look at what is said in verse 48. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. Now we're going to bust open our Greek here because this is very important. I'm not going to try to tell you what that Greek word is. That's Bob's job. <laughs> but I will tell you this. There's a tense in which the word forgiven is used. It is the perfect tense. You and I don't have this in, you know, all the things that we may understand with basic English. 
But here's what is being communicated when Jesus says that thy sins are forgiven. He's making this statement. I've got it here in my notes, so I want to make sure I read it. The Greek present tense being sosokin was used for the word forgiven, which is to say this. Your sins have been forgiven and stand forgiven. They are, not they will be, not they have been. They are right now, present in this moment and for all of eternity. You stand forgiven, woman. You stand forgiven. (laughs) Praise God. (laughs) Praise God. We stand forgiven. And look at 49. You can tie 49 to 39. What's the response? Simon understands his mistake and accepts Jesus as the Messiah, puts his trust in him for the payment of his sins? No. And even those who were now being introduced to the story for the first time, there's somewhat of an audience. I don't know how many, who they are. But it says, And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this? It's incredulous. Who is this? That forgiveth sins also? Jesus knew that they were looking at his statement that he had just said, and they were misapplying it to say that that act that she did is what saved her from, you know, judicially with her sins. That's what saved her. He clarifies in verse 50. Take a look. And he said to the woman, he addresses her for the second time, thy faith hath saved thee. Go in what? Peace. The lesson here is not that there was a moment in time right there when Jesus said, thy sins are forgiven, that she automatically became forgiven because of her works. She walked in forgiven. That's why she did what she did. She is the debtor who had 500 pence. Simon represents the nation of Israel and anybody who rejects Jesus Christ. They are rejecting the full payment of their sin by calling him a liar. I want you to look in verse 31, where you say, wait a second, 31, what does this have to do with anything? Well, in true, inspired Word of God fashion, there's something taught beforehand. 31, and the Lord said, whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? Oh, great. Now Jesus is going to give his transparent view of this generation and of the Pharisees. Let's see. They are like unto children, sitting in the marketplace, calling one to another and saying, We have piped unto you, and you have not danced. We have mourned to you, and you have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking wine, and ye say, He hath a devil, the son of man, me, Jesus, is come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of all her children. And then we get into our story. So what can we learn from this? I'll give you some takeaways. The first one is, salvation is the result of God's gracious work received by faith. We're not going to go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, but that truth is communicated there. Number two, God graciously forgives the debt of sin 
that no one can repay. We are going to look at that. You can let Luke 7 go and go to Acts chapter 13. This is on page 1167, verse 38, Acts 13. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, Jesus, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that what? Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. As a Bible student, I'm seeing a lot tying into this word, believe. To me, it has massive significance, and I ought to know what that means. Are justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now hang on to those three words. Two of them are the same, one of them's different. Believe, justified, and justified. And listen to this next point. Peace with God is possible because of the forgiveness of sins. You got those words? Believe and justified? Go to Romans 5. Verses 1 and 2. We're saved by grace, which was demonstrated by the offering of Jesus Christ. That's God's grace. We put our faith in him. We are born again. Acts 13, 38 and 39. We are now forgiven. We are justified. Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, being justified... Some will say that we're in the process of being justified. That is not what that means. E-D, it's past tense. We are justified. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein you stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. May I have your eyes for a moment. Think of the Day of Atonement once a year in Israel. There would have to be offerings prepared. They have to be slain in a specific way. There has to be all sorts of stuff done. And then you go into the Holy of Holies and you present that. And there's the scapegoat. You don't just wake up on Monday and say, we're going to have the Day of Atonement today. There's preparation. But as a child of God, you have permanent access into his presence because the blood of Jesus covers all your sins. All of them. What are your works? What good are your works towards that Precious, eternal blood. There's no value. Now for service, that's different. But who are we to say that we're justified by our own works? Who are we to say that? Our standing with God is because Jesus died for my sins, amen? That's the significant part of verse 2. Access. I want access. I was at Walmart a couple of weeks ago. I have a Ford Ranger, okay? Y'all know that? My little mini truck. I look like Wreck-It Ralph in there. I know. I went to Walmart. It had been a busy day. I turned off the car for some reason. I said, hmm, keys can stay in the ignition. Doesn't matter. I got out, and it's very customary for me. I just push my elbow down, and the door locks, and boom, the door slams shut, and I go, The thing I'm trying to return at Walmart is still in the truck of which I have now locked. I still have my phone. I call my wife. 
Remy's sleeping. We can't find the spare key. So I go on YouTube and I say, how to break into a Ford Ranger. What a search, right? What a search. There were so many videos. My truck is not safe. I've come to that conclusion. I walked around at this guy's suggestion. I walked around to my car's antenna, and boom, that thing comes off. I go over to my door. I pop open the handle, and I jimmy jimmy, wiggle wiggle. I don't know how many people walked by me. They obviously thought, this is normal. We're at Walmart. This guy, he looks the part. I don't know if he'll fit in that truck, but whatever. I'm, all of a sudden, I, I see the little lock thing go like this. And I'm like, I'm going to do it. So I moved just a little bit closer, moved to the left, and popped it right up. I would have much rather preferred to have access to my truck than to literally sit there. And, and now when you look at my antenna and you say, why is it bent like that? <laughs> Oh, that's why. You say, Pastor, what, what is that story? What's the significance of it? We value access, don't we? As soon as we don't have access to something, we panic. Isn't it good you have a verse like this, that there's nothing that can deny you the access before God? This is the description of you have peace with him now. The woman who came into that meal, she already understood that she was forgiven, and she was demonstrating her thankfulness for it. Because she loveth much means that much was forgiven. Fourth point here. The more one understands forgiveness, listen to me now. The more one understands forgiveness, the more love he will have for Christ. People ask me all the time, how do I walk in the Spirit? How do I live a disciplined life? How do I do? How do I do? How do I do? Stop for a moment and dwell on all that has been forgiven. Stop for a moment and recognize where you would be if you didn't have Jesus. It naturally produces love. Meet me in Philippians 4. Philippians chapter 4. <coughs> I might do speech to text tonight, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. Paul makes this statement. For I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me, this is financial, hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. They wanted to give and support Paul, but they didn't have the opportunity to do it. But he, he, he reveals his inward nature here. What's Paul's inward disposition towards his needs, both spiritual and physical. Not that I, res I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. That's the key, folks. You want to get out of credit card debt? You want to stop spending, all that kind of stuff? You just be content with the things that you have. Why do we think that also doesn't apply to our spiritual life? Stop trying to follow rules for the sake of rules and love the Savior. How do you do that? You thank Him for everything He's given you. This is why in John chapter 15, Jesus says, your father is glorified by much fruit. Well, that implies you have to bear fruit. And you only bear fruit by connected to the vine. Well, that chapter goes on to say, love me. And then so love one another. There it is. 
I know how to be abased, verse 12, and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengthen me. I am not going to make any kind of judgment on any kind of players that will be in that game tonight, but I guarantee you, you will see this verse used out of context. When you understand it in context, Paul is saying, I don't need to have victory temporarily in this life. I don't need more money or more food, even though I'm poor and hungry. I have Christ. If we really saw Philippians 4.13 used properly in tonight's game, nobody would suit up. Nobody would play. Because they wouldn't need the win. They wouldn't need the stats. They have Christ. But notice it's the only ones... It's only the ones that win that say anything about Jesus as if Jesus is going, my money is on the Niners. As if Jesus is concerned with that. Don't be deceived. Dwell in reality of the scripture, not in the fantasies of the world. And my last point here is in Romans 1.21. This point is self-righteousness deceives the unbeliever and hardens their heart to true repentance. A true change of mind cannot happen if you're in unbelief. If someone is looking at Jesus, and they are continually denying that he is who he claims to be, they cannot find the truth. And you say, oh, is that because God has, is is this a sign that God did not choose them? No, it's a sign of their own hard heart. That's what it is. And through that unbelief, God allows them. He allows them to continually harden themselves. There's still hope for them, but the hope goes down further and further and further. Also, God can't save them. No one's saying that. But that person won't come to faith in Christ. Whose fault is that? Look at Romans 121, page 1192. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. You see Simon, our Pharisee friend here? I see it. Neither were thankful. Oh, there's that word again. That's exactly what was happening with the creditor and the debtor. It manifested in love, but it started with thankfulness. The creditor who had 500 pence was very grateful. That woman was very grateful. And the other one, well, at least Simon in the illustration, wouldn't even believe, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. I bet you we could think of some minds today of people that are just, they're just so smart because maybe they have money and they have successful, useful products. You know, all that's going to go away. I don't see where Jesus is going to be riding on a Tesla when he comes back, but many people think, oh, that's a sign of my business acumen. I don't see Jesus, you know, coming back in designer clothing. I don't see him flashing his cryptocurrency balance or his retirement account or a portfolio of all of his his investments. You say, well, of course he's not. Well, then why do we try to make those things define us? And why do we look up to the people who have more of that and say, oh, there's some type of wisdom there? We have foolish minds and they can be darkened. And the person who denies Jesus Christ, it's darkened in unbelief. So what should we do? What should we do? 
you be like that woman. You find the opportunity and, and time to be in the presence of Jesus. You have access. Remember how much has been forgiven of you. And as a result of that, let it move you to action. Maybe instead of just giving that gospel tract to somebody, maybe start a conversation with them. You know a simple, hey, how you doing, is a great way to see how people are doing? You know the statement, what can I pray for you today, can really open a lot of doors? There's a church right down the road that teaches all that kind of charismatic stuff. And I guarantee you, my friend David walked, in, walked into a store and was sharing the gospel with a, a lady who goes to that church. And she was all about it until she heard that her good works don't save her. She said she'd think about it, but praise God for David giving her the truth, amen? If we look at those people and we say, Mm-mm-mm. no, I'm not going to talk to them. Well, then guess what? You're not going to talk to them. And the lost die outside the church every day. <coughs> I pray you've enjoyed our study today. We're going to move over to communion now. So if you would, join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Thank you for praying for me. I thank my wife, too, for making me some of that hot tea. It's really good. And it was helpful. Before we talk about communion, we need to understand what has been done for us. I'm going to use my wallet to represent all of our sin, okay? And I'm going to use this hand to represent you and me and everybody in the whole world. I put this on top of my hand because we're all sinners. We all have sin. Doesn't matter how much, we've got it. The wages of sin, the payment for sin is death, eternal separation from God forever in a literal fire-burning hell. And the standard to get to heaven is sinless perfection. So many people want to redefine that. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Well, guess what? Does it matter? In the eyes of God, you fall short. It means to miss the mark. That's what sin means. I speak of myself. This is me as well. And it's certainly you. It's everybody in the whole world. Now, God loves the world, and he demonstrated that love to the world. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. But so many people want to turn back to themselves, and they think, I can be saved by good religious works. Let's name a few. Going to church, giving money, being a good person, uh, you know, letting somebody else go out in front of you, all that kind of stuff. Those things are good enough to get me to heaven. No, they're not. The Bible says they are filthy rags. This sin separates us from God. We need someone who will remove this out of the way. This hand being Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, the woman who is a sinner or Simon the Pharisee, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Your salvation is attained not by your good works or promises to do better, not by any kind of physical reforming of your life. Your salvation is attained in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Whosoever believeth, you here today, you change your mind from unbelief, I'll save myself, to belief, I believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for my sins. You are saved, not on my authority, on the word of God. 
that sin was already paid by Jesus. And when he came back from the dead, it verified his claims. And now we, as forgiven people, have eternal fellowship with him. We're covered by the blood. If you're here today and you walked in and said, Pastor, if I'm an honest person, I thought I could save myself. I thought maybe even coming here today would be a little bit more that I could use in my case. But I see now that I'll never be able to do enough and that Jesus fulfilled the payment for me. Right now, I put my trust in him. I would like to pray for you. Can we have a moment of silence for a moment? Would you pray with me just for a moment? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you're here today and say, Pastor, that makes sense to me. I put my trust in Jesus Christ today. I know I'm going to heaven. Would you pray for me? I certainly will. Nothing would give me more joy than be able to do that for you today. The prayer does not save you. Raising of hands does not save you. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ a few moments ago, that's when you got saved. Now, would you raise your hand and let me know that? Again, raising your hand doesn't save you. It just lets me know. Anyone before we close with communion? Anyone at all? Amen, I see you. Father, I pray for the one that's lifted up their hand to say that they will put their trust in you. Heads are bowed and eyes are still closed. I got a room full of forgiven people here today. Do you love the Lord like you've been forgiven? Has your heart grown cold and callous because of the circumstances of the world, because of the hypocrisy in the church, because of all the things that are going wrong? Have you gotten caught up in the fact of just doing things to do things? Look to the cross. Look at the blood-soaked ground of Calvary. Look at the nail prints in our Savior's hands. And thank God you're forgiven, amen? Let that motivate you, that love that God has shown to you through Jesus. Let it motivate you to love others. Be kind. Put a smile on. And give the gospel. Lord, bless our time with communion. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. You are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We do communion to remember the sacrifice that the Lord made for us. These things here are just elements. There's nothing special or holy about them. We are not drinking so that we're more spiritual or eating of the bread so that we can get a bigger pat on the back. This is an exercise in humility. The bread represents the body of Christ, which was beaten for us, and the juice represents his blood that was shed and applied to our sin. The purpose of doing this is so that when you continue out today with your life and you are presented with the opportunity to sin, you remember the body and the blood. You remember the price that was paid by our Savior. It is so odd to me that people would think, oh, I'm better because I take communion. You're totally missing the point. <laughs> 
point is not about you. It's about him. And we are reminded of that. This passage also talks about taking of communion unworthily. What does it mean to take of communion unworthily? You come into the Lord's house today, and you got a bunch of sin in your life that you have not talked to the Lord about. Let's talk about that word confess. It doesn't mean you go like in a, in a priest booth and you confess your sin. The word confess means to come to agreement. Before you partake of these elements today, you need to get right with the Lord. Is there sin in your life that you've said, God, it's no problem? And God says it is sin? You need to confess. Come to an agreement. Lord, these sins that I have said are not sin. They are sin. I agree with you. And you go in peace. You can also partake of this unworthily if you're not saved. Now, I'm, I, I, I can't tell. But if you're going to partake of this today and you deny that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, you ought not take it. But for us who are part of the body of Christ, don't be walking in here thinking you can just sin it up and then, oh, this washes it away. This ain't about washing it away. This is about recognizing what that sin that you're sitting in costs our Savior. On the top half, there's a little fine film. If you cut that back, pull that back and open it up. We'll have prayer now for this that reminds us of the body of Christ, and then we'll read in the scripture. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we remember the blood, excuse me, the body of Jesus Christ, how it was beaten for us. Violent is the scene of Calvary. He is innocent, Lord, yet he had his body beaten for us. I pray that this is strong in our minds. And I pray, Lord, that we will not forget it. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. The next part is the juice. This represents the Lord's blood. Let's go ahead and pull that back. Please be careful. Open it away from you and not put it anybody else either, just in case, because it's a little tough to get off. There are religions that teach this becomes the blood of Christ. That is heresy. There is nothing in the scripture to indicate that. This, again, as our Lord used illustrations to teach, so this is an illustration to teach that this blood of Christ has paid for our sins. We are forgiven because his blood was shed. Amen? Would you pray, for, uh, would you pray with me? Father, we remember your blood that was spilt. We remember the great price you paid at Calvary. Lord, we then know that you ascended and that blood was applied, amen? And we are so thankful for it. I pray for myself and also for those in this ministry here that we would be sensitive when we're tempted to sin, that we would remember this blood that was shed. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray these things, amen. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread 
and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. I asked you in the beginning if you're thankful to be here, and I'll ask you again. Are you thankful to be here today? What a blessing. The things that we've learned, don't let them sit. Don't go in the car and go, wow, I really appreciated that. Put them into action. A couple of things. I'm going to have James come up here. He's going to lead us in a, in a, a closing song, but just a few things. It's just, I'm just remind, reminded now. I forgot to take time of silence. I'm sorry. I, I just forgot that. Uh, but we are going to have a church meeting right after this. I would like to start that meeting at 12.15. It's 12.07 right now. So if you're a church member, gather your things and all that. Come sit on this side. There's nothing different between this side and that side. It's just how we've always done it. <laughs> uh, but make sure that you have a ballot with you and a budget. We'll go through that quickly, and then we will dismiss. Awana has an uh, event tonight, so please make sure that you're here to support that. And then as you're going out, talk to each other. What can I do for you? How can I pray for you? There's a lot of people in the church that are hurting. Let's not pretend that, oh, our obligation is over because it's past noon. You look to your left and look to your right, you're looking at the body of Christ.